Howdy, everybody. I'm Robert Cannon. This is Figure of Speech, a podcast dedicated to the impact of forensics. Episode 21, Lance Geiger. Lance, welcome in, buddy. Nice to have you. Good to be here. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Obviously, Lance, is uh, Lance. you're in a completely different state, and we're recording this remotely. Um, I should be mentioning that uh, there's been a long gap of episodes. I haven't been publishing very many episodes lately, and that's mainly due to uh, the coronavirus. I've also moved uh, to a new location, and we're trying to get all of that set up. So there's been a number of different things that have happened that have prevented me from recording new episodes, but I'm happy to come back with Lance. Lance, I want to talk to you. You competed during what years? Do you recall what years? Um, well, yeah, I, uh, through college and high school both. I, I, I competed from around uh, 77 to around 87. Okay, so that's a, a, about a decade, the better part of a decade. Better part and, then, of a decade. and then I coached for, coached for more than a well, decade right? after that. And where, where did you primarily coach from? I primarily I coached them at Wyoming, but I primarily coached at Northern Arizona in Flagstaff. Okay, cool. Well, let's get started. I want to get uh, get to the very beginning. I'm always interested in how people get involved in speech and debate, and um, I want to know how did you get involved in I guess 1977? What was the <laughs> beginning? Where were you in 1977? Uh, I was I was not even a zygote in 1977. You were not even yet. Yeah, I uh, actually I remember it uh, fairly well that uh, I was in junior high in 1977. But uh, this group called the Modern Woodmen of America, which is fraternal life insurance, and I've said I don't really know what that means. I guess they're masons that sell life insurance, but uh, they had sponsored a uh, speech contest for my junior high school, and I. Uh, I participated in it. it was probably something really patriotic something like why well, i'm proud to be an american or something like that <laughs> so i decided to sign up and do it and i won a little wooden trophy i was first place uh, i would imagine it was a very big school so i would imagine there are only two three people that competed but i did win <laughs> the very first speech tournament i competed at uh, and i knew from then on that this is something that i would like to do i, I think speech people will realize this uh, or will understand this is that I've always been more comfortable talking to a crowd of people I don't know than I've been even in like interpersonal communication. Oh, and yeah. it's just never been a fear for me. So I that's an interesting fun. phenomenon. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so you win your first tournament, you take home mm -hmm. the wooden trophy, and you're bit by the bug. Yep. It's interesting that right. your story does not begin, uh, you know, chasing a, a girl or a potential romantic interest into forensics. I feel like there's a lot of that that happens with speech, <laughs> you know, like, well, oh, I gotta, the girl I gotta... chasing me, and this, that's what was going on. <laughs> so, all right, you you win this, uh, you win this award, and then how does that translate into competitive speech? I mean, are you, do you just start seeking out a, a, a do the uh, the high school uh, debate coach? Is the one that judged the little tournament that we had from the you know handful of junior high kids, and so she uh, quickly recruited me in. So that when I started high school the next year, then I went into speech in the high school team. Now you say speech. Did you do competitive speech or did you do primarily debate? I did both uh, over my career. I would say in high school that I uh, I think we called it policy then. I don't know if we're still using the same terms, yep, but I also yep. did Lincoln Douglas. I also did oratory. I did a little bit of interp. I actually did a, a James Thurber piece. Did I see that you did Walter Mitty at some point? I did do Walter Mitty at some point. Yes, I did. So I did. Uh, so I went to districts actually in in interp. I you know I was a theater geek in high school, but I really wasn't much of an interpreter. I mostly did a policy debate and limited prep. I did extemp. Okay. And so you, it, it's very unusual that I mean I'm always interested in people that do both speech and debate because. The, the whole community, I think, is kind of divided, and some people will dabble in one or the other, but most people tend to focus on one area or the other. 
and I'm interested in people that that really are are kind of flow back and forth. And it's interesting to me too that you say that the the debate coach pulled you in, and I guess that debate coach also coached speech in addition to the debate. Yeah, yeah, we only had one coach. It was I was in a podunk. I was in South Dakota, which is the state of the union for those that don't know, and uh, I was. <laughs> I was in a podunk town by South Dakota standards, so we had we had one coach uh, and one team, and we did. I mean, we did both. I think in high school that was some segregated, and that we frequently went up to these little afternoon tournaments on a Wednesday. We drove up to the big city of Rapid City, uh, and uh, would do those in the afternoon, and those were debate only. But if we had a weekend tournament, it usually had both, and you could usually do both. Sometimes there were limits where uh, debate rounds would be opposite some stuff, and I think that's maybe why I didn't do as much in Herp. But we also had, you know, we had uh, discussion. Do you remember when discussion was an event? No, I don't. What was discussion? It was an actual event. It was an NFL event. And we did that. And uh, I did uh, Student Congress and uh, Model what, UN. What, and that was all the What was discussion? What was discussion? Describe that to me. Was, is it just uh, having a conversation? Have, we would have four chairs. Uh, so three of them would be in a line and then one would be turned. So it made it sort of an L. And that, that L would be the, uh, the discussion leader. And they would give you a topic, like a debate topic, and you would discuss. And then they would individually judge you the quality of your discussion. That's interesting. So it's kind of like yeah, a, like a, well, I mean, they gave, they gave like a round table. Yeah, kind of. Yeah. So it was, it was, it's so I guess that's kind of like debate, except you're not, you didn't have an half and an egg. They weren't competing with each other. It was four people having a discussion. So it was how prepared you were and how much you contributed to that discussion. It was, it was almost like a format, like if you had a, a news discussion at the time, you know, on the news, sometimes you'd have them put a few experts around a table and they chat. And that's what they seem to be aiming for. Right. Like uh, the Bill Maher, politically incorrect or. Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah. Very like that. Except, or something like that. Except you weren't allowed to be funny. If you were funny, you were losing points. <laughs> I can't imagine that's true. Really? If you're funny, you lose points? <laughs> yeah, they weren't looking for it. It was a serious discussion that we were having. <laughs> well, maybe, the, maybe the judges need to lighten up a little bit. So that's do you a, recall? I, I think I've debated probably gun control, I don't know, at least half a dozen times over my forensic <laughs> career. And the first time I did that was in a discussion group. Yeah. Oh, wow. Do you recall your very first tournament? Uh, aside from the modern woodman one, I, yes. I'm fairly sure uh, I do. Uh, we used to, I, I grew up in a little town called Hot Springs, which is near Mount Rushmore, if anybody's been there. Uh, and it, it's a very small town. It was probably 4,000 people at the time. And the big city nearby was Rapid City, South Dakota, which has has 40,000 people. So, I mean, that's that's massive, right? That's yeah. that's right up there with New York. <laughs> anyway, they would do novice tournaments on a Wednesday afternoon. So you'd leave school an hour early. You'd drive about an hour up there to Rapid City Central High School, uh, which was uh, almost as large as our hometown. Uh, and you would do these after-school novice debates. And I'm sure it was one of those uh, and I'm uh, I'm very sure, yeah, that that uh, I sent you a picture actually of my my partner I and I. I saw it, yeah. He's only only Brett would have like a full beard as a freshman in high school, but you know, uh, we went uh, and won our first tournament. But it was novice only; it was only people who hadn't debated before. So I'm 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 fairly sure that I won our first all around uh, debate tournament uh, with other ninth graders from the greater Black Hills area. Oh, that's great. So you you start out as a freshman, and, and I guess already you're kind of in love with the activity. Is that right? Is mm -hmm. that fair to say? And then yeah, I mean, I would say honestly, through my career, I, my problem was I loved it so much. I loved it more than school. So occasionally, it kind of got in the way of that academics thing. Yeah, I remember talking to a few people. Um, there was the guy who taught me debate, uh, Michael Miller. He told me that when he was debating at um, in in Texas at the University of Houston, he 
basically would look for classes where the professor did not take attendance and those were <laughs> the classes that he would sign up for so that he could just basically skip all the classes and focus on debate that's all he did that was that was kind of how it was and i i did i did find some of the easiest classes in the history of the the universities of wyoming and colorado uh doing that but i mean it hit my grades sometimes i mean i wasn't serious about school i was serious about forensics and i did as much forensics like a football player I did as much as it needed to keep your eligibility going right 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 so uh, keeping with high school Walk us mm -hmm. through it. Did, how did, did you go to NFL Nationals? Now they call it NSDA, right? So the NFL changed their name to NSDA. I, I, I didn't. I never qualified for Nationals. I'm sure we thought we were really good, but again, we were from Hot Springs, so I, I we made it. Uh, we did well regionally. I mean, we did well in the, the tournaments that were against uh, a, like Spearfish, South Dakota, and Leeds, South Dakota, and Rapid City, uh, and so there was a few schools around there. But uh, we didn't even qualify for state. We were the next team from our little district up to even the state tournament, which you had to qualify then from there to, to, to NFL. So I didn't, I mean, I had, I remember having lots of those little pins with a little, I think I had like two rubies or something on in that little right. pin. Right. Uh, so I, so I did a lot and, and I did get a lot of little trophies. I probably thought I was really great, but I, you know, I don't think I was by national standards or anything like that, but we had, uh, I mean, first couple of years, we had a debate coach who knew debate pretty well, but she didn't really care much about events. And then when she left, uh, the coach was uh, a great person, but really a volunteer without any much background in it. I never went to like, you know, summer camp. I, I really didn't have a lot of coaching, which you might expect from a, a really small little high school in a small little right. town. Yeah, that makes sense. And so you, by the time you're a senior, you graduate and mm -hmm. now you're probably looking for colleges and walk mm -hmm. us through that. How, where do you... Where do you go and why do you select those colleges? Is it forensics? I, I, you know, I wasn't looking in terms of forensics. I was kind of directionless, I would say. I took the ASVAB, the Armed Services Vocational Aptitude Battery, and I, I considered, if you've ever taken that, it's a really funny little test. They'll have you do things like they'll have a bunch of commas and you have to figure out how many periods are among the commas. And from there, they'll decide that you should drive a nuclear submarine. Uh, but uh, I did very well on the ASVAB. Apparently, I'm good at picking periods out of commas. Uh, but you know, considering the military, and but I, uh, I, there wasn't much going on in the military at the time. There wasn't a lot of good reason to go into it. So I ended up going to the University of Wyoming, which I, I was down in the southwest corner of South Dakota. So that was really the closest real major university. And it just seemed to be close by. They came on senior day and, and gave a little presentation. Uh, and it turned out uh, that there's a pretty good debate team down there. I didn't know the coach. I didn't recruit for the debate team. But when we went down, I uh, went down with my mother and did the, you know, the freshman walkthrough. I wrote a note on the blackboard there saying that I was uh, that I'd done speech up in the Black Hills uh, area conference and was interested. Uh, and so I just started there. Uh, and that was actually turned out being great for me because I ended up going back uh, to graduate school at the University of Wyoming. But the first couple of years of college, I was at UW uh, and it was pretty much a debate program. I didn't even know if they had uh, events going on. If they did, there weren't very many. Nope, you cut out. Are you still there, Lance? What, you hear me? Yeah, go ahead. You said that you uh, you said you didn't know if they had any individual events, and then uh, if they had events, no one was doing them at Wyoming. At Wyoming, I did CETA uh, back in the day when CETA was distinctly different from NDT, and it was right. it was more an NDT program. They kind of shoved the you know the kids who had gone to school in South Dakota into the CETA program. Mm -hmm. uh, but we did. I learned a lot. There were some really good people there. I had some good grad assistants, and and we did. Uh, we did pretty well there, uh, you know, regionally. Uh, it, when CETA was was really value debate, it was substantially different than uh, national debate topic was. Hmm. And so you competed there, you said, for two years? For two years, yeah. I, I really enjoyed forensics speech, but I 
I had trouble kind of finding my way in college. I just didn't get a peer group. And, I, and uh, so I took a couple of semesters off there, a couple of years. I took a couple of semesters off and, you know, did stuff that wasn't of any value to the world. And then I went back to the University of Colorado because my, uh, my father had moved down to Colorado. My brother was going to Colorado. So uh, I, I went down there, uh, which was also interesting because it's there's not a there's not a team at Colorado with the university. It's actually a student funded student group. Mm -hmm. uh, so there's no scholarships or anything like that. There's no faculty support. So I showed up, but I knew them because they also competed in the same region as Wyoming did. So I came and I knew some people there and then I competed at, at Colorado. No, well, you had taken a couple semesters off. So I guess mm -hmm. they, they were, had been younger than you when you had been competing and now they're maybe a little bit, or then, you know, they were, or they were my age. And so I came okay. back and they were juniors and seniors. There were just a couple of people that recognized me there when I transferred down. And uh, one of them, that I had debated what became my debate partner there. And we did, we did pretty well again, regionally. So uh, Colorado was, was different. I mean, there, we did events uh, seriously at Colorado. So I was usually doing both. How did you and, get hooked uh, into was, doing those events? Like what was the, what was the jumping off point to get you to start doing uh, limited prep and, and those, you know, they were, they were just doing them. So I, I had done extemp in high school. It was probably actually what I did best in, in high school. Uh, and uh, we had someone else who was, really keeping track of the file, which is the hard part of, of extemp, right? So right, right. You know, if he was going to keep where all the magazines were, then I, I'd certainly go in and give limited prep speeches. Uh, and so, but it was also, it was a, it was a small team, it was a tight-knit team. Uh, and so everybody was kind of competing in everything. And so uh, that's, you know, it was just something everybody did there. I always love uh, teams like that. I mean, I don't know. I, I've competed on all sorts of different teams. I've competed on big teams, tiny teams, and just with my history, just kind of similar to yours, you're kind of bouncing around from school to school and you wind up with these different kind of programs. Mm -hmm. And I've always liked the the student-run programs because the, the students, that if they're focused, if they're actually highly competitive, those are some of the best programs because you're propelling each other in a way that um, even oh, yeah. a really solid coach can't do. You know, it's, it's really got to come from within the group itself. And, it's and I say that as a coach myself. It doesn't go, yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's certainly disadvantages, especially when we started competing on kind of the national level in debate. Uh, not having a coach means that we had a lot less experience with other judges and right. I mean, there were things that impacted us. But that, that there was a great atmosphere at Colorado. It, I mean, some teams, I mean, even at the time, there were teams where the event squad and the debate squad were different and they might not even know they're both going to the same tournament. <laughs> but also, we were in the District 9, which is, which is up and down from Wyoming down to New Mexico, down the, the, the west slope of the Rockies there. Uh, or East Slope of the Rockies, sorry. Uh, and uh, uh, pretty much most schools were doing what we were doing. They were doing both events. And so when you went to a tournament there, uh, and like the big tournament in the area was at Colorado College, which is down in Colorado Springs, mm -hmm. then it was very common that every all the schools, all the people were doing both. And so the schedules were built around that uh, so that you could compete in both. It might make for a long day. I mean, you might the tournament might start eight in the morning. Uh, and then if you were if you were doing debate, out rounds would come out after the uh, the awards assembly so sometimes you'd be started at eight in the morning and you might be if you were if you were there all the way to the final round you might be midnight or past 1 a.m and you're still competing that's so crazy but, uh, yeah, you could do both and pretty much everybody did you know and then the, uh, the problem with that and I, I get it i mean people want to compete but the problem is wellness i mean a lot of teams will try to drive back after something like that and that's where you have accidents oh, yeah. and it's it, that's really it's really we, dangerous. I mean, in the early days, I mean, for me, I mean, I guess I wasn't the earliest early days, but it, I mean, first of all, that, that whole word wellness kind of came up was I, when I was a coach in the mid nineties. Mm -hmm. So in the, in the early eighties, no one was thinking about that. No one was talking about that. If you got time for a meal, you got fast food. 
there was no idea of a, of a healthy snack. And yeah, you, we competed until people died, literally, because about every year there would be someone who died on the road. But yeah, we, you know, uh, we would have a tournament maybe, say, off in the middle of Kansas somewhere, uh, which would be about a you know, nine, 10 hour drive from, from Boulder. So you would go, you would start competing at eight in the morning if you made it to finals, which we, you know, we did. And it also, if you wouldn't uh, share eliminated in debate, then your your uh, judge is uh, obligated through the next round. So if you right. made it even semis, you're there another, you know, couple hours. So, uh, you know, frequently we would finish somewhere around 1130 midnight, one or 2 a.m. You would just go get in the car and you would drive home probably in a blizzard across Interstate 70 until you got to... Uh, the boulder or you know didn't so that's it insane like that's there really crazy where someone in the community would be lost and that was that was part of you know we just didn't really consider the the, the length around and that sort of thing that, you you realize the ridiculousness of what you're saying right i mean and then oh, yeah, i get yeah. it like i understand that the drive to compete is just so fierce with a lot of uh you know a lot of competitors that you can't turn it off but man alive like and i think there's still some tournaments that that take that approach and man that's just it's not worth it at that point. I mean, I love this activity as much as anybody. <laughs> That's far as we do that. Husband. I have been around the world in a kind of line band. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, uh, in uh, like at Wyoming, it was uh, it was a spin thrift program. You never got on an airplane. If you were going, you were there on this on this van. Uh, and so I've you know, driven thousands of miles in yeah. terrible weather and the time of year when you really shouldn't be driving cross country. And uh, sometimes late at night or with young drivers that don't have a lot of experience and Nobody in the van has had enough sleep. Uh, and you, you, we didn't think about it at the time, but I, I, I at least uh, twice in my career, uh, we had accidents where the van was flipped over uh, and no one was think, think no one was hurt. But I mean, it was just this how it was. And at Wyoming, we were so spendthrift, we just pushed it back over. They never fixed the dents. It didn't <laughs> have the dents on the side until I left. Yeah. That's funny. Well, I mean, thank goodness nobody died on your watch or, you know, in, in your situation. Yeah, but I knew that others others did. I mean, there were there were accidents yeah. where people died almost every year, and I, that right. could still happen even if you're considering wellness. But I, sure. it was really for me. It wasn't until I was had been a coach even a few years that I started to think in terms of, gosh, you know, I've been I've been to every state of the lower forty eight for tournaments, and very often all I've ever seen is you know the the airport to the hotel to the tournament back to the airport or the highway. Right. Uh, and you're, didn't you don't actually have time to go see Disneyland? So I would add an extra day. It was hard because people were missing school usually, but I would add an extra day. I would make sure that we never went home the night that the tournament finished, that we stayed the night. And then we would try to do something like go on a nice dinner or go out to a park or a beach or something. Right. Uh, and actually, you know, remember that you'd been there. But that was that was something that people started sort of thinking of, you know, well after I had been competing, you know, well into that. I've been going for 10 years before anybody started thinking about that. I had a coach, um, again, Mike Miller, who taught me how to debate. He, um, he had a good policy, which is you don't speak and, and travel on the same day. You, you, that's going to be our rule. Like you have to travel on a different day than when you compete. And I like that. I think that's a, a real fair. That's a good rule. Yeah. We didn't have that rule. We didn't, that, that rule didn't even occur to us. Yeah. I didn't have that rule in high school either until, you know, that wasn't until college, but uh, you know, I, I think that's a good rule. Well, let's get back to your career and your, um, mm -hmm. your, your whole experience. So, when do you go to when do you go to AFA and IET? Is that um, uh, so? I went down to Colorado uh, in '86. Uh, I think I came down in the spring of '85 actually into debate. Uh, but uh, uh, so '80, uh, so that year '85, '86, and then '86, '87, I was at Colorado and I still had eligibility. So in '86, uh, I think I qualified in duo, but my duo partner, who was 
brilliant, uh, had qualified with plenty of duo partners, and he, he you know, rightly didn't take mine. But uh, I did qualify in extemp uh, fairly easily. I mean, in terms of earning the, the points to qualify, because there's lots of tournaments there in District Nine, and I, you know, I, I pretty much always made finals when I was in district. Uh, and then that year I made semis, uh, and that was I think I think it was in Arlington, probably in '86, if I'm remembering right. Um, Not sure. I, I can I, find out. Yeah, I, I'd have to look. I, you know, it's funny. It's been. You know, it's. I actually haven't haven't been involved in the speech community for 22 years. So everything I'm talking about here is thinking back somewhere around 20 to 40 years. So uh, <laughs> that's all right. I have trouble remembering some of it. So I, I made semis, which was pretty good because uh, we didn't we didn't really have a coach and we didn't have a lot of limited preppers on the team, and so I didn't. Like, I didn't know how to plan my movement. I would just kind of wander around up in the front. So some so, one of the judges there said, if you hadn't wandered around, you'd have made the finals. And I'm like, oh, okay, next year I won't wander. Uh, and so the, the following year in 87, I made to the final round. That was at San Diego State, which is a beautiful, beautiful university. So I just looked so it I up. Did, and you uh, you're, like, you are correct. I only took to, uh, only took to AFA extemp and uh, only did that twice and made semis the first year and finals the, the, the second year. Well, that's awesome. I just looked it up. You were correct. Uh, 86 was Arlington, 87 was San Diego. So yeah, look at me. Yeah. Yeah. yeah your, your, your memory is not too shoddy. Uh, <laughs> the, yeah. So that's incredible. So you only took extemp both years, only one event uh -huh. and then you semied and then final. That's, that's fantastic. It is and I have to mention something here. The way that you found me is cause I do a YouTube channel. Yeah. I was going to uh, bring that up. YouTube channel has, uh, my channel has been viewed 85 million times. Uh, and no one before has ever asked about the pewter plaque. That's in the background. I have a pewter plate up on the thing. No yeah. one has ever mentioned it or noticed it or known its significance at all. You are the very first person who said, that's an AFA finals award. I knew exactly what it was. I guess I mean, speech people don't watch my uh, my YouTube channel. But well, the very minute it popped up, I, I saw you I, I saw you talking. I can't even remember what the first video was I saw, but I saw it and... Uh, and I, I saw you talking, I said, that is an AFA plate if I've ever seen one. And I know exactly why you would have it on your, on your no one, No one ever recognized it, yeah. Yeah, and then, and then I said, I've watched you on a few different videos, and I said, you know what, I should just reach out to this guy and see if he'd be willing to do a, an episode of this. And I'm really glad you said yes, because uh, oh. I, I otherwise wouldn't have been able to have this great conversation with you. But uh, please note that I have, uh, I've seen it a number of times, and I'm always kind of like, man, I like watching your videos, and I definitely want to reach out to this guy because he's got something to say. So, yeah, well, I'm glad you did. It really is. It's uh, it's brought back a lot of memories for me. It's been really so long. It almost seems like another life uh, since I did that. But I, you know, I was in forensics for more than 20 years. It was really a huge chunk of my life. And it, since it's been more than 20 years since, I, I, it's nice to be able to go think back on that. But I'm amazed that I remember that I was in Arlington in 1986. Well, you were you were correct. Um, so after AFA, so you win. You said fifth place mm -hmm. at San Diego State. Is that correct? I was fifth place. Yeah. And do you remember what your your speech was about that fifth place? Do you remember what the topic was? Uh, I or the think, uh, if I remember, uh, that I drew a topic about Chad, which was in conflict at the time, and I have to happen to have done a paper on Chad fairly recently uh, for my political science degree, and so I think that's what I did in final. There might have been semis, but I think that's what I did in finals. But uh, did you feel happy at the time with your speech? I don't want to insult someone that I don't even remember who they was. There was someone in the prep room that I thought was impolite. Uh, and and I, I said to myself, I only want to beat him. And so I finished fifth, and I only beat him. So I don't. I hope whoever who was sixth in '87 doesn't hear this and get mad at me because I don't even remember who. But I thought he was rude to someone in the in the prep room. So I, I always thought, Ben, I should have said I only want to be first because I, 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 said, <laughs> I only want to be beat him, and that's all that I did. Yeah. 
Well, I mean, I, I guess you, you get what you wish for. Did I guess you... so, yeah. Maybe, maybe that's what I get for making what, you know, what was maybe an unkind wish. So whoever, whoever you... that was, I don't remember who you were at all, but I'm sorry if, uh, if I hurt well, your feelings. Whoever maybe was... he should apologize. <laughs> maybe he was being inconsiderate. Maybe he was. Maybe you deserved it. Uh, yeah, maybe. Do you? Um... I, I've gotten over it by now. I don't remember what I did. Do you feel confident in the speech? I mean, at the time, did you feel like the, the speech that you gave, like you nailed it? Or do you feel like uh, when you walked away from the round, did you feel like, oh, man, I screwed that up? How did you no, feel? I thought, like it was, the final I thought it was a perfectly fine speech. I, didn't, I mean, one of the funny things about extemp is you don't get to see the other competitors. Mm. But I, honestly, uh, I wasn't, it wasn't important to me. I, you know, AFA was a cool thing, but I mean, it wasn't terribly important to me. I was thought it was really cool that I made finals. So I know that I gave a good enough speech. I didn't embarrass myself. I got, you know a speech that i wanted to give so I, it doesn't surprise me that four were better than me but uh, but i didn't feel like i had blown the round at all now i think i gave a good speech did you go to nfa at all no we, we uh we weren't really an nfa school uh nfa tends to be more up in the great lakes and the east coast but we did send some people to nfa that year i just didn't happen to go mm. so i i didn't compete in nfa uh it when i was uh competing but later, you know, we attended NFA quite a lot when I was, we had a good events team going on at, at NAU. Well, let, that segues nicely into the next section of your forensics career. So let's start talking about after you graduate from college, okay. you start doing, so, you start coaching. So how does well, that take place? I, uh, first of all, I spent another two years after, after I ran out of eligibility, I had another two years at Colorado. Um, <laughs> partly, I mean, partly because I, you know, I was only taking light loads and stuff from speech and then. I decided I want to hang out another year and get a history degree, which has turned out to be a wonderful thing for my my uh, my life now. So you have uh, a political science degree and a history degree? president of the team hmm. and it's a student team. So that's essentially director of forensics. I mean, you do everything a director of forensics does. You just also go to college. Uh, and right. so I spent another two years at Colorado. We ran tournaments, and then I went and judged and did what coaches do. So I would say my coaching career really began when I was an undergraduate as a student president at Colorado. I see. And so how did, how did, did you segue, what was your first proper coaching job? I, got, I, I guess you did, you did collegiate. Wyoming served me there. The coach there knew me. Uh, and uh, so they, there's a graduate, pro, graduate program in uh, uh, communication up at Wyoming. And they had graduate assistantships. That's really who coached the team. Uh, and so uh, I got a graduate assistantship to go coach at Wyoming. And I did there when I got my grad for two years to get a grad degree. And then, do you remember what year? What year was that? Would you say was that eighty nine? Uh, I think that was eighty nine, ninety, and ninety ninety one. I'm pretty sure is when that was. Yeah. Right. Okay. And so, yeah. and, and so you were for a couple years. I can remember that I was in Arlington. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> so you're there for a couple years, and how does that turn out? Uh, you know, we did okay. It was a debate program mostly, but we also had uh, uh, events. Uh, I ended up marrying someone on the event team, so I guess that went okay. Um, it didn't go okay after, but I mean, for a while it went okay. Uh, and you know, it was like when I was at Wyoming before. We did well regionally. We didn't necessarily do well nationally, uh, but it was a great team, and we really we had a good time. Made a lot of friends there. I have, I don't know, I, if you got time for a story. Sure, absolutely, I love stories. Okay, so we went up to see the Nats when it was in Bellingham, Washington. So we're in this van, and the way, the way it worked at Wyoming, the speech team actually bought a van because that was cheaper than renting vans from the University Motor Pool, mm -hmm. and drove them until they fell apart. So it wasn't the same van that had the dents in the side. It had been replaced since we dented it, you know, seven years before. But uh, right. you, uh, you flipped it back over. 
So, so yeah. And, and so, so this one didn't have dents. It was the old, we called it 262 because that was what the license plate number was. But we drove from Laramie, Wyoming to Bellingham, Washington because we were never going to get on an airplane. Oh uh, and we never, you know, we only ever saw the tournament hotel from a distance too. We were, we were motel sixers there at, at, at Wyoming, but I took how three. Long, teams how long of a drive was that? I'm sorry. How long, how long of a drive was that? I, I think it was nine months and 17 hours. I don't know. Forever. <laughs> it was forever. It, that's probably on the order of a 17, 18 hour drive, I would guess. Uh, that's crazy. And we weren't going to stay on the way either. So you, we had six debaters and two grad assistants and we just shuffled through. So that you're a zombie by the time you make it to Washington. Of course, it was sure. uphill both ways and snowing the whole time. Right. Uh, so you we, had, we, we had to push, right? I, I think I think maybe one of the teams made it to double ox or something like that. But I mean, we didn't do you know terribly well or anything like that. But we're on our way back and we're in Idaho. And I, you know, 40 years later or 20 years later, what I really remember more is the time that we spent in the van. I remember that more than tournaments anymore. But we're, we're we stop in Idaho to get a meal. Uh, and you know how it is when you got you know people that everybody wants to go someplace different, right? Agree. So we just stopped at this sort of place where there were several fast food restaurants kind of close to each other, so people go where they want. So, so we go, we eat. We're coming back to the van when we're supposed to. One of the debaters comes walking out of the Taco Bell, and right behind them comes this Taco Bell manager, and she's screaming at the top of her lungs, and she yells at him that she knows he took the money. She saw him take it, and he better give it back. And we're. <laughs> We don't have a faculty member. Well, they're just two stupid grad students standing there saying, you know, if he gets arrested, you know, what what do we do? And we're stuck in in Idaho. And she is yelling and screaming. And another employee comes out and she yells at him to call the police. And we're trying to ask this debater. We're like, Chris, what's going on here? And he he's just standing there looking stupid. And so we're yeah yeah it, it was it was really we didn't know what was going to happen. It turns out uh, he's a really smart guy. He was a pretty good debater too. But it turns out he had gone into the Taco Bell and somehow talked this manager into playing this trick on us. <laughs> and, and, and so it, it, you can imagine how it's a grand thing to think about. And quite honestly, we probably would have been more successful a team if I if I'd uh, abandoned those debaters and gotten her and got an AFA because I think she could have won DI. But uh, <laughs> she, she was amazing. So anyway, that uh, you know, it was a really good trick. They really did get us, and she she took a bow and everything like that. But. The, the, the kicker to that story, the, that guy, that debater, we called him Stinky. Uh, and you know how you get nicknames uh, in speech, but it, was, it, was not, uh, it wasn't a hygiene issue. His body just reacted strangely to certain things that he ate. And I got the nickname Stinky. So Stinky, who we thought was going to be arrested for stealing from Taco Bell, uh, is today the Senate Majority Leader for the state of Wyoming, or Minority Leader, I'm sorry, for the what? state of Wyoming. <laughs> okay, he's Senate Minority Leader, yeah. I'm assuming he does not go by Stinky any longer. He doesn't go by, well, every time I talk to him, he's still Stinky. But no, I don't think you ran under Stinky. No, I, think I don't. I don't know how good that looks on a. I don't know how good that looks on a campaign button. You know, vote yeah, for Stinky. Stinky for it, yeah. Well, that's. Uh, I like that. I love. The, I love the little stories where people are messing with each other. I always find those to be fascinating. <laughs> that was one of the best. Well, you know, they, oh, it's always going on. But that was really one of the best ones, and it was really because there was extraordinary talent uh, as a manager of a Taco Bell. In Idaho, in the middle of the night, on the way back, you know, uh, probably around thing, eight, nine, I think that was one thing that you you mentioned, and I, I think is it's a real truism with this activity, is the 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 memories that you really start to form are not about the the tournaments. That's what you sign mm -hmm. up for, but the memories that you form are really the people that you meet along yeah, the way, long fan rides. Absolutely. Yeah, I, you know, there was a time, I mean, well, I could tell you every debate round I was in and what we argued from years before. 
and that I right. knew every single uh, topic I'd ever had in a final round of extemp. And that's all in the, in the in the intervening couple of decades as my as my brain is slowly rotted, uh, turned into you know sponge or whatever. Uh, that's all faded. And really, the stuff that I remember most is is fun stuff that was that was going on and, and the people that we knew and crazy things that happened. That we were in a we were in Los Angeles. There used to be a tournament called the the, the Win Over Christmas that would call they called it the California Swing. So we were at UCLA, and it was probably the day before Christmas, probably Christmas Eve, because we would actually compete on Christmas Eve. Oh my uh, and uh, and Eddie Cruz was debating for the University of Miami, and he was he was a really great guy. He was a really really good debater. But it was the '80s, and he was from Miami, so he was dressed in a pink sport coat like Don Johnson used to wear in Miami. <laughs> and okay. and I swear that's what he was wearing. Uh, and and, uh, and he was playing football with some of the Florida State guys, I think, uh, just out on this grass at UCLA. Well, it turns out there was a sprinkler that was like leaking. So he runs to get the ball and he hits a muddy spot and he just flies up in the air. I mean, I remember looking up and he was like vertical in the air and he landed full straight down right in this mud hole in this bright pink jacket. Oh my gosh. Uh, and I, th I remember that. I mean, we, uh, we did well at that tournament. I'm sure he did well. I don't remember anything else that happened in the tournament. I just remember Eddie, Eddie getting mud all over his pink coat. <laughs> I, I would like to have seen that final round with him, uh, you know, uh, I, I think uh, I think we uh, actually I think maybe one of our guys lent someone lent him a new jacket. He didn't. Uh, no one had another pink jacket, but I think he wore someone else's sports doing, there. But I, I mean, the doing, back of his pants would have been would have been brown. He just had to stand facing the audience, I guess. I was doing duo at AFA, and in my semi round, uh, I, there's a, a scene where I went down. Uh, I have to drop to my knees, and when I did, um, the floor of the theater it's kind of like a little theater that they had, and the flooring was kind of rubbery, and it ripped my suit pants uh, oh no right open both knees and it, you know, computed, <laughs> finished the duo but then i looked down and noticed that you know I had these two huge holes right on my knees and i had a di round right after that di semi and luckily i had an extra suit back at the hotel but i didn't have time to go get it and i my dad was there my dad was able to go back and get the extra suit but um it was really interesting to me the whole community rallied and mm -hmm. there was um one guy who was a uh, his parents owned a dry cleaning service and he knew how to sew really well. And somebody else, there was a girl who had a sewing kit. And so she gave, these are all from different teams and they all just mm -hmm. said, here, here, here. And they helped me out and went in the bathroom, took my pants off and the dry cleaning kid knew how to sew really well. And he made it look presentable so I could go to this DI round and with yeah. this stitched up pants. And I thought, wow, what a, even at the time, I remember thinking this is an incredible community that will come together when push comes to shove, even yeah. if, yeah, Even if it's not in their best interest to do so, they will, they'll do it because it's the right thing to do. There, there's some who compete. I, 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 rem, I don't remember who that guy was that was sixth at AFA there that year, but I mean, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's funny because it's so competitive, but uh, it's, it's a friendly bunch. It really is a friendly bunch and people who do come together and people that you compete with and, and even, you know, in debate, it can get kind of heated uh, and you still are, you know, your buddies outside of rounds. And it was just always a really cool tight knit community. And even though I don't, uh, you know, haven't been touching the community for a very long time. I have a lot of connection with people that I uh, that I knew through the coaching and through students and that sort of thing. So I still know a lot of people in forensics, uh, and so it's amazing how they pull together, how it continues to pull together. And I'm surprised. I thought you were going to say that someone lent you a pair of pants because they'd literally lend you the pants right off of there. <laughs> yeah, maybe they would. Yeah, I like I, you know, I didn't make it a semi, so here wear my pants. Yeah. Well, I think I think this is the next best thing. So it's <laughs> giving you the so, pants off their own suit. It really does say. I mean, there's uh, there's a lot of stories like that where you know you just uh, uh, you know people helped each other out when they had to help each other out. And, right. And right. It's, it's kind of what you did. It was a tight knit community. Yeah. 
So how did you go from there, from uh, from from that position to going to NAU? Can you take us through NAU, so I, I, I finished the grad school at Wyoming. I did I did well. I was the, out, the outstanding student in the graduate program. Wow. Uh, so they gave they actually gave me a little uh, a, a certificate or something for and that. You were you were a graduate in what was this history? In speech communication. Speech communication. So you have a degree in history, speech communication masters, and then do you have a degree in political science as well? Or yeah, you just start so I out? had a double major in in poli sci and history with a minor in speech pathology. Wow. Uh, and then I have, <laughs> I don't know, go figure. Uh, and then I, I, I the I grad school at Wyoming, so that's the master's, and that's I didn't go any farther. I didn't. I never got a PhD or anything. Okay, so how do you go to Northern Arizona? Uh, well, I, you know, I applied after I got that degree. Actually, I got uh, married while I was at Wyoming. And so I had a wife and we were expecting. Uh, and I uh, got a couple of interviews. I interviewed up to the University of Puget Sound, which is lovely. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, and I interviewed at NAU, where I know the coach very well, uh, and ended up getting, getting offers from both. And so I took the NAU position. And it, that worked out, too, because my office mate, Sue Reitz, who is a really great person, and she's now up at the University of Montana, got the Puget Sound position. Uh, so we every everybody turned out okay. There, I mean, there, there's an interesting story there too. I go to NAU. I actually did it on one swing trip. I went and spent two days up at Puget Sound, which is lovely, but it never stopped raining. Uh, and then I flew down to Flagstaff. Uh, and so uh, the the coach there, uh, Sharon Porter, I don't know where she is now, but uh, she was at NAU for years. She went and picked me up, and we went to have lunch and or have have breakfast before I went to do the interviews. And she was talking about how nice it is to be in a town where you don't have to lock your doors. And, you know, a little town like that. And then we came out and someone had stolen all my luggage out of the back of her truck. <laughs> but they got like two years later, finally, the police gave me my luggage. They recovered most of it. But, uh, yeah, it was still. So I had to go interview. I didn't even have a copy of my resume because that was all in my briefcase. That was stolen. So that's that's how I wound up at NAU. I was uh, assistant director for a while. And then we were we called ourselves co-directors for a while. But Sharon became department chair. And so I became director of forensics, I think, you know, towards the end when I was there. But I, I was there from, I think, the fall of 91 through 1998. Okay. And so uh, walk us through what happens there. Now, there's some controversy here in 91. Yeah, yeah. And that I comes way at the end. That I mean, we'll, it, we'll, it was the end. So I'd say when I was there, I mean, uh, it, was, it was a really great team. We had, we had a lot. Of, I, I So many great people. I kind of mix up who was there when. But when I went, it was largely a CETA team uh, with a few really good people who were, who were doing events. Uh, but the first year I was there, uh, the seated people just didn't do very well. Uh, and the eventers did really, really well. And it just, we kind of sat down and said, you know, it makes more sense to go where our strengths are. Uh, and so we, we had events teams uh, mostly. We still did some seed, you know, here and there, but it was, we, we mostly moved to it becoming an events team. Uh, and, uh, and it got to be a very good team. We got, uh, uh, this is, I don't know if, if any coaches want the secret that we had that took us from a team uh, that, you know, had, you know, was a very small team to a team that was nationally competitive that we made really good connections with junior colleges. And so we got uh, we got a connection with the College of DuPage, which is up near Chicago, right. uh, and, uh, Palomar, which is down by San Diego. Mm -hmm. yep. uh, they had really good teams. So so we had people who had had two years of junior college and had done well at Pyro Pi, and then I would give them scholarships, and they would come to NAU. And so we, we, we ended up going from a, you know, a team that uh, uh, you know, had people do events here and there, and a team that had had some really good uh, uh, interp in the past. Uh, to a team that was a really kind of a powerhouse uh, events team in the time that I was there. And I, you know, was teaching and had a, had a young family and all that stuff going on. Uh, so in uh, the see in 1997, uh, I was the tournament host for the Delta Sigma Rho Tau Kappa Alpha National 
tournament. And how did that go? Uh, uh, yeah, the DSRTK. Oh, it went perfectly. It was fantastic. That was kind of the test. That year we bid for AFA. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, and uh, uh, we got the bid for AFA. So the, the year before you host, then you you are in charge of the tabula or not the tabulation, the uh, ballot stuffing room. That was at Florida uh, there in, in 97. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we hosted AFA in 98. And uh, the tournament went perfectly, except for a really ill-timed snowstorm. <laughs> so uh, it's outruns <laughs> are on Monday. And we got about eight inches of snow on Sunday night. So we did great. We finished third place, which is the highest the team had ever finished. It was quite good, uh, you know, given the quality of the competition. Uh, won a couple of championships. So it went fantastically. But, but there uh, was some controversy. So this is the controversy. This is my, my big mistake that, that ended my forensics career. We had a couple of students, and they had finished their coursework in the fall. Uh, but they were still eligible. So the plan was to have them in enough uh, distance learning courses to maintain eligibility, which is perfectly legal. I mean, we, you know, we weren't trying to break any rules. But somewhere in there, in you know, coaching a team that was traveling, I mean, I think we traveled 25 tournaments that year. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, uh, two kids in the midst of a messy divorce. It was terrible. Uh, and hosting AFA. I didn't watch some forums where they needed to be. So I competed in eligible players. Uh, and I didn't realize it. I mean, all the plates in the air, that's the plate that had dropped. Someone from the high school newspaper figured out that they weren't enrolled. Like I had, I had thought, it, and I want to make it clear here, it wasn't their mistake. It was my mistake. It was my responsibility to get that stuff through. Uh, and so if you look back at the, at the uh, 1998 AFA, you'll see a couple of spots. You'll see that the number three team says team disqualified. That's me. Uh, and you'll see places and they will say competitor disqualified. That was them. Uh, and so it was, I mean, it was, uh, you know, I, I, I don't even know what to say here. I feel most bad for those two, for Steve and Derek, because they worked so hard. Uh, and I, I hear they asked for their plates back. I don't think either of them gave their plates back. Uh, but they both have, have gone on to great careers, so I guess it wasn't, you know, it didn't shatter them. But, I mean, I, I'm embarrassed. I uh, uh, I let down Larry Schnorr, and Larry Schnorr is, I don't know where Larry is now, but Larry Schnorr is the nicest man ever, who ever lived on the history of the earth, and you never want to let him down. Yeah. Uh, and people, our district coaches, I'm sure, thought that this reflected on the district. So having done, I mean, that was the height of the career, hosted AFA, and it went perfectly, and your team did really, really well, and then uh, then it all fell apart within about two weeks. So, so I don't I haven't been back to friends. I haven't been to a tournament. I haven't judged around since then. And I don't know. Honestly, I don't know what people think about me. I can say out there because I never had a chance to do this. But if you're still out there and you still remember the debacle in 98, I'm sorry. I, I really do apologize. I did not mean oh. to uh, to embarrass anybody or to embarrass the event or any of that sort of stuff. It was just all, you know, it was a big mistake. So any of you didn't technically let me go. Uh, they didn't tell me I had to leave. But I, but uh, I knew I couldn't stay, and I certainly couldn't stay in forensics. So I left forensics then, and I went out into the world. And for me, that ended up being—I mean—that's kind of the kick. Maybe I needed to go do something else, uh, or I might still be coaching speech. I honestly don't know. But uh, uh, yeah, that was that was the that was the big controversy. It's a it's the biggest mistake I ever made in my life. Um, I mean, I've never had another career mistake like that, where it's something that would so embarrass you know who I was working for. Did you, so I'm sorry, I think I might have misheard you. Did you say NAU did not let you go, but you decided to leave on your own? Yeah, I mean, they didn't, I, I, I never had a meeting where they said you're fired. Uh, but also, I think, you know, the because uh, remember that the former director who had hired me was now the department chair. Right. So I think she certainly at least gave me the opportunity to make sure that I could just choose to, to leave and not, not be fired. Uh, I, I think maybe I could have stayed on as, as junior faculty, uh, but I certainly couldn't have been involved in, in speech anymore. Uh, and I, I, you know, I wouldn't have wanted to. I would have been just too embarrassed walking around. So, uh, 
so I, I, uh, I did, I moved on, I went out into the corporate world and I did all sorts of things since, and you know, it seems like another life ago, but, uh, so it was when you sent the note, I mean, I was a little, I had a little bit of trepidation here because, uh, you know, I did not end on a high note. Uh, I almost did. Right. I had a high note and then I had one, one sour note after that. Well, it probably wouldn't have ended if it, I mean, that would have just been, yeah, no, I might still be around doing it, but, but, you know, it's turned out, I mean, uh, you know, it turned out that there was a lot of things going wrong there, didn't you, including, you know, my marriage. Uh, and, uh, and maybe it was time for me to go on and do other things. So I, I, I saw in the end, it turned out to be an opportunity for me. I'm really sorry how it impacted other people, but in the end, I, I, uh, yeah, I should have been thinking in terms of leaving then anyway. I mean, when that when that tournament went so well, I should have been thinking maybe maybe it's time for me to go do something else. Not to be overly salacious, but I just I, I have to ask, what was the conversation like with the students? You said Steve and Derek. Was that the the names of the students? Steve and Derek. Yeah. Well, first of all, they were they were no longer living in Flagstaff. Remember, they they were living in California. So uh, uh, later, I mean, at first, uh, uh, Derek sent kind of a kind of a mean note to Larry Schnorr. Uh, but I mean, since then, uh, I think we've made up. I mean, I'm still friends with Derek on on uh, Facebook. But uh, I, I mean, at the time, I think they were very upset, and you know, they deserve to be very, very upset. But I never, uh, again, they weren't even there. I never sat in a room with them. I mean, I told them I was sorry. So I, I don't know. Uh, Steve went on. He uh, uh, he's in film somehow. He helped to write the script for the kids' movies, the Brother Bear movies. Mm -hmm. And I don't know what he what else he's doing now. But I mean, he's, you know, he's, they're both in Wikipedia. I'm, I'm, I'm not, but uh, so <laughs> they did okay. But uh, yeah, I, you know, I, I never got to sit in a room with them and say, I'm sorry. I mean, it all came down after they had gone back to California and, uh, and I don't know how easy that would have been at the time. And I, I honestly don't know how angry they were at me, but I would have been. Uh, how did you, so how did you find out about the whole, I'm sorry to, to just like focus only on this, but it's an interesting story. And, and I like, it is, yeah. I appreciate well, I didn't, how... I, mean, honestly, I didn't know, I didn't realize that anything had gone wrong or anything like that, but someone from the high school or from the college newspaper right. uh, was just looking up people's majors that had done well, which, you know, you would expect them to do, and they're the ones that mm -hmm. figured it out. Uh, and so uh, it kind of came to me through the grapevine that the student paper had figured it out, and, then, and that's when I realized, you know, gosh, those papers were probably still on my desk somewhere. So, I, you know, I kind of found out, I found out from a faculty member because the newspaper was part of the, the journalism school, which was the school of communication that I was in. So I did find out before anything came out in the newspaper or anything like that. And, uh, but it was, I mean, at the time, it made the Christian Science Monitor. Hmm. So the first time I've ever been in a national newspaper was for them to, uh, or uh, no, no, they, uh, not the Christian Science Monitor, the Chronicle of Higher Education is where it was in. So that was the first time I ever made a national newspaper there was that, uh, that I had made an error. Well, it wouldn't be the last controversy to uh, to make headlines. <laughs> I mean, it's been, been more than a few cents. So I don't know if it was worse in my head than it was anywhere else. I don't know if there's anybody else that remembers it. Uh, uh, aside from some of my students are still out there coaching, uh, and and uh, most of them are still you know good friends. Hmm. Uh, but uh, yeah, and Derek does Derek does poetry and does poetry slam sort of stuff, and he's you know famous. Hmm. Uh, but uh, Stephen Derek, if you're out there. Uh, I'm sorry, uh, and anybody else that remembers that I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. Well, um, moving on with your life, so you went into the corporate mm -hmm. world, and mm -hmm. this is this is a a speech and debate podcast. But I would be mm -hmm. remiss if I didn't at least bring up the history guy. So how does that segue? And obviously, how does uh, how does speech and debate impact that part of your life? 
Oh, there's a big gap in between there before I got to, to the, the history guy. But uh, actually, uh, when I left, I went into corporate training is where I went. From, from a college professor, corporate training was a fairly easy shift. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I would say certainly all the experience I had in speech and debate has always served me extremely well uh, in uh, all sorts of, I mean, I've had multiple corporate careers too. Uh, but so I, I left at AU, I, it took me about a year before I found a job in the corporate world. I've worked at three different top, you know, Fortune 50 companies. Uh, and uh, started with training, ended up in sales. Uh, and, uh, it, you know, it was just, you know, you start doing a path after that. But everywhere I went, it was uh, it was my teaching experience and my my speaking experience that made the, the biggest difference. So I, mm-hmm. it's not like I stopped doing forensics. Though I, I really want to, this is an important thing to warn forensics people if you go out into the business world and you tell your boss that you did speech and debate in, in college. This is so everybody write this down. They're going to ask you to run the corporate Toastmasters club. Right. And it's the worst job on earth. No one thanks you for it. And you spend your entire time trying to convince people to show up for meetings. And it's you, it doesn't help you in your career at all. And they're just doing it because they knew you did speech and debate. So don't tell your boss unless you have to. That's the, the biggest advice I have for forensicators out there in the corporate world. Aside from that, that happened to me three times. And they were all painful. But uh, uh, they end up taking far more time than it's worth. But uh, and I even like the Toastmasters is fine. It's great. Just the, those corporate clubs. You don't want to be the one that's trying to get everybody to come. But uh, the, the forensics served me very, very well in in my career. One of the things that I can do is that I mean, we could be at a meeting where there's you know a hundred or a thousand clients in the audience, and I'm having to get up and speak. And I found out even people that are like you know plan presidents or people who have been doing this for a while are terrified to do that. Uh, and that that actually is a really valuable skill that uh, yeah. makes you you know successful in in the world. I mean, there were there were things that I wouldn't have done from the position I was in, except that I could, and that helped me move along and, and be very successful in a career. Yeah, I think just that confidence that you have, um, that anybody that's been doing speech for long enough, when you can stand up in front of uh, mm-hmm. more than 30 people and you can speak eloquently, that's going to mm-hmm. bode really well for your future. Especially with limited preparation. I mean, you know, they'll, they'll be like, right. oh, you know, it turns out we got to have someone speak. I'm like, oh, I will. You know, what do you want to talk about? And, and that you can put something together. I mean, that's what Extent Plus, right? Uh, and so you can put something together and give a speech that makes sense and come up with some sort of conclusion that touches people. And that has been extremely, extremely valuable to me. Mm-hmm. So, so I went through a, a long career. I mean, I could, I could talk more about, you know, some places if you, if you wanted to. But uh, my, my last career, I was at uh, Anthem Blue Cross and Blue Shield. Um, and, uh, and, you know, uh, so, yeah, health insurance. And I, I know that probably some people here don't, don't love the health insurance. But it was actually a really good place to work. Uh, and I started there in training, uh, and at some point I was training salespeople, uh, and uh, and one of the sales managers said, you know, why aren't you selling? Uh, and so he hired me to go into sales, and that's what I did for the last few years I was there. Uh, and then uh, I, I I was laid off. My my division was laid off. That's a long story, but it really has to do with the Affordable Care Act kind of changed how some things worked in health insurance, and my division was you know not needed anymore. So right, uh, and, you know, no 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 hard feelings or anything. But uh, I, I had uh, I had some money saved, and I was high enough that I had a I, I wouldn't say a golden parachute, but I had maybe like a you know a bronze or a <laughs> copper kind of a tarnished copper parachute. But it was enough. It was enough that I could spend some time doing something else. So I was looking back at health insurance, but I'm like, do I really like you know? I just kind of wandered from place to place. I didn't like choose health insurance, and I said, you know, I really want to try something different that's not working in a cube, and that's how I took up the the, the YouTube channel. So how did that begin? You just started recording videos? Yeah. Well, I, I, I tried recording them on my iPad, and they were terrible. So I bought some equipment, and I figured out linear editing. I had no idea on linear editing. 
But I had always talked about, and if you talk to people that knew me back in forensics, they'll probably tell you this. I'd always loved history. I would just kind of tell stories about history. So I had this in my head that if I just told history as a story, uh, in short history, uh, and I knew that I could present well, uh, I thought that I could do something that might be successful. So I did. I have a very understanding second wife uh, who, who you know, imagine I've been, I mean, I've been an executive at a, at a healthcare company making a pretty good salary. And now I'm like, you know, I don't want to go back and do that. I want to, in the basement, build a studio. And, <laughs> I'm going to be a YouTuber. And she was like, if that's what you want to do, that's what you want to do. And it took about a year for it to make any money. And it took about two years before uh, it was paying enough uh, that uh, she didn't have to work. I told her, you know, we're making enough now. You don't have to keep working if you don't want to. And then uh, and now it's paying uh, you know, more than I made in health insurance. So it, it, you, you can succeed. I am, I'm living proof that there's life after forensics. And I'm living proof that <laughs> you can actually make a living in YouTube. How, how many videos do you release? Do you release one every month or so? How often do you I put out three a week. Three a week? Three a week. I put out over 400 videos. Yeah, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, we post. Yeah. I didn't realize it was that many. It's kind of, it's kind of history extent. Because I put up a, like I put up a video this morning. Uh, I've got two days before I've got another video on another history topic that's got to be posted. That's and so you, I didn't you realize it was that many. Take a topic, research a topic, boil that down into a ten or fifteen minute presentation, tape that, process that, put media in that, and have that up two days later. Well, I guess the next question that I would have to ask is when are you going to do a history episode on forensics? I I don't know. <laughs> uh, I, I, you know, I have to think about it. I mean, if there is some, I mean, like interstate oratorical goes back, you know, to the beginning of time. Uh, right. And so there's, uh, there, you know, there might be some stuff there. It's funny, I hadn't thought about it. Uh, oh, but that, you know, that, I, that would I, be an I, interesting, I interesting show. episode. Mm-hmm. Yeah, would. I mean, we talked about Cicero and some other stuff. We've talked about some oratorical stuff. But I, I've, I've, I've taught rhetoric and rhetorical criticism and, and uh, all sorts of stuff. And I haven't worked all that in. But I did, when I was at NAU, I taught a course that was called... Uh, uh, it was uh, Survey of Communication, Communication 101. That was not a public speaking course. That was a course that was designed to introduce communication students to the whole breadth of stuff we did in the School of Communication, which included journalism and photography and marketing. Uh, I mean, it was a broad school. And so I was supposed to get a little bit of each of that. And I turned that into this course that's sort of a history of communication. It started from, you know, this is when people probably learned to talk. Uh, this is how we evolved differently so that we could talk. Uh, you know, all the way up through the printing press, through through uh, modern broadcasting and stuff like that. So that was what we did in the course of the semester. That has become uh, the genesis for a number of episodes of the History Guy. Is where do you get most of your episodes for the History Guy? The topics, you know, um, uh, <laughs> uh, viewers send them, uh, but I also am always just kind of poking around, and a lot of our stuff I've been talking about for years, and I go and research them, and and so it's, uh, you know, we're we're doing a lot, so we get them a lot of different directions. I do have some other writers, so like my oldest son. Uh, it writes for me. And so the one that's going up on Friday is uh, one about Alexander the Great. So he loves talking about ancients. Uh, and cool. so I just, uh, we just, uh, the, the rule is pick something you're interested in. So it can be, it can be kind of funny, it can be kind of crazy. We were, uh, my wife and I were watching this show on the, on the Discovery Channel, I think it was, where these two guys, one was from England and one was from Australia, and they would go buy antiques in Australia. And then they, they would have an auction at the end of the week and see who made the most money. And that was the show. <laughs> And so somewhere in the course of the show, this guy bought this picture that had King James knighting a piece of meat uh, and, so, and saying, this is sirloin of meat. And and <laughs> I looked at me and she said, is that for real? And I'm like, I don't know. So I went and researched it. And it's for real. And it actually happened multiple times. Multiple monarchs thought they were the cleverest thing in the world by knighting a piece of meat and saying, calling it sirloin of meat. 
Uh, and so we made a whole episode of that. It was a great episode. So sometimes it's just something you stumble on. Uh, and it, part of that is really forensics. That you can get, we used to, in public speaking classes, we would do something where you would just put like stuff up on a table, just random right. stuff up on the table, and say, pick it up and give a speech about it. Uh, and that was a way to you know, help people get used to limited prep and stuff like that. And that's kind of what it is here. The, this idea that I can take whatever topic, because we, if you watch the channel, you know, we do broad stuff. I mean, we did, right. our right. most popular one ever was about a kind of screwdriver, if you can believe that. Uh, that is our most popular video is that they have a different screwdriver in Canada. I think that might've been the one, the very first one that I saw. Yeah. That was, someone just sent me an article about, you know, why do we use different screwdrivers in the U S and Canada? I'm like, oh, that's kind of interesting. And that's been, <laughs> I don't know why that's because we've got a lot of episodes out there, uh, but that you can take something like they use a square screwdriver in Canada and we use a cross screwdriver in the United States and then turn that into a 12 to 15 minute story. That's compelling and fun to watch. And that is all forensics. Every bit of that is speech skill. Yeah. And I, it's funny that you mentioned that too about um, using different prompts. You know, we, I've, I've been to a number of tournaments where you crack open fortune cookies and you got to take whatever fortune's inside. Mm -hmm. We even used to run a tournament. Um, it was cowboy themed. It was The whole tournament was kind of cowboy themed. And impromptu was especially fun because we would bring in a bag uh, at the, you know, for finals for impromptu and the t contestants would reach into the bag and pull out you know, a horseshoe or a whip or, you know, a toy gun or something like that. And it would be like, okay, this is your object that you, it was cowboy themed. And so you would need to give a speech about whatever that object was. So, I mean, exactly what you're talking about was used in, in tournaments, you know, and, and mm -hmm. I, I think it's a really important skill set to develop. And it obviously it, has it, a lot it, of payoff. Out in the world, because sometimes you're asked to speak on things with very little time to think about what you're going to prepare. Right. Uh, I was more of an extemper than impromptu, but I mean, this is to me very like extemp. I get my topic on, uh, you know, uh, in the morning and then I have to produce a speech that I'm going to put out pretty quickly. Uh, and it feels a lot, you know, I have to do all the research in between here and there. And so it's a lot like extemp, you know, I got two days instead of 30 minutes, but uh, it's, uh, it's it uses very similar skills. Well, then I'm going to officially challenge you to do a, do some research on the history of, of forensics. I'm going to throw okay. that out as a challenge. I'm going to put something together. Uh, you know what? You always have to tell a unique story, but I will yeah. put something together, and and uh, you know what? I'll put your. I will put a dedicated to Robert at the end of that video. Oh, that'd be great! Yeah, give us give us a shout out to uh, figure his podcast. I, I say too, when you when you contacted me, I went and watched your final round speech, your final round uh, uh, inform that one NFA. Uh huh. So now, in addition to everything that else is going on, now I'm up at night wondering when the polls are going to reverse. So thank you for that. <laughs> Well, you're welcome. Hey, let's uh, let's get into a next section of the the podcast. It's what I like to call the final round. Now, this is ten okay. survey questions that we ask every guest who comes on the show, and uh, I, I think I sent them to you ahead of time. But you uh, did, you did send them to me, yes. So I'm going to ask you these ten questions. Number one: okay. Were you superstitious in speech? So I'm, I'm going to tell you from the start. I'm not good at favorites. So for some of these, I'm going to have more than one. But uh, was I superstitious? No, no, not really. No, I mean, uh, yeah. all, some people that I don't think I was. I would get my hair cut before an important tournament, but I mean, that's something you should just do anyway, right? Oh, okay, that's interesting. I used to clip my fingernails before tournaments. Well, I pretty sure I probably did that too, but I didn't think I did it, you know, superstitiously. No, okay, all right. Number two, who is the competitor you most admired? Uh, that's one of those where I, I have trouble with. Uh, I, there's a couple people I, I really want to talk about there. One of them is, is Greg Dolph. Uh, was probably one of the the best interpreters in the history of of AFA. Uh, he's at Bradley University and he's a legend. Uh, and uh, Greg, after he had finished competing, and I and I had the 
privilege to judge him a couple of times when he's competing. After he's done competing, uh, when we were at Colorado, we invited him to come out and work with our team the following year. Uh, you know, so we we flew him out and put him up in a cheap hotel, and and he said, I mean, he said yes without a second thought. And I would say for probably, I mean, one of the top interpreters ever in in ever. Uh, he was just the most self-effacing guy. There was no ego there at all. He was great to work with. He was really fun. Uh, and and it was I mean, it's kind of amazing because we were, you know, we were all ready to genuflect. He was a legend. And, and he was just he just the, the, the coolest, smartest, nicest guy you'll ever meet. Uh, he said, I want to all I want to do is make a living as an actor, uh, which is not easy. Uh, and he ended up doing that in a way I never would have expected. But he did the stunt show at Universal Studios for decades mm-hmm. uh, and made a living as an actor. He might still be doing it. I, don't, I think he retired, but. Uh, he was the deacon at the at the Waterworld show. I think he probably got more out of Waterworld than Kevin Costner did. Uh, but I, did that I, re- like- I remember looking him up and seeing that and seeing, oh my gosh, he does stunt work. And I, I was I remember work, yeah. seeing that. Yeah, he he told us at the time that he had gotten like he had trained in in staff fighting and and he worked at at uh, uh, he worked at an amusement park or something and he and he played uh, uh, the 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 rat catcher and he would do staff fighting with little john at some some amusement park or something so i didn't i wouldn't have guessed he would go into that stunt work but uh, but he did and he made a living from acting darn if he didn't do exactly what he's going to do so i really do admire that he was so great at it and he was always so self-effacing but i didn't i didn't compete with greg when i asked about a competitor i really had to think back on that and i, I really wanted to mention when we were at colorado uh the uh, we didn't have a coach and we started going, my, my debate partner, Phil Horowitz and I, he's a lawyer in, in, in Denver now. Uh, you know, we started going to these national tournaments and not everybody necessarily embraced a new couple showing up, uh, a new couple of debaters showing up, but there were some really cool people. And back then in the mid eighties, uh, to me, the by far the best debate team out there was Florida state. And those guys in the like 86, 87, those, that, they were absolutely unreal. Uh, and uh, Kerry Crenshaw, uh, I think he's probably the best debater I was ever in a round with. She could win a round in a rebuttal like, like nobody's business. But uh, that group there, at, uh, they they were just so nice to us. They just embraced us. And and uh, uh, Carrie had kind of a, she had kind of a talent where she would just give you a little you know supportive nod. Or I mean, they were always shaking your hand if you won an award. Or I mean, she she had this real talent for making you feel appreciated. And if you were like tired at a tournament, you always made a difference. So that that group, I haven't seen them since uh, Cedar Nats in 1987. But I'd say I really admire, I mean, I learned things from them. I feel like they were really the spirit of forensics. Uh, and, and I really do admire, you know, what they did for, they were so good at what they did, but they they never lorded that over people. They always used that as, as a way to help people. So uh, Mark and Mark and uh, Robert and Carrie, I don't know where you guys are now, but I hope wherever you are, you're doing really well. And, and you made a difference. And so I, I wanted to bring them up too. Well, that's sweet. All right. Well, question number three, what's the most memorable speech or debate you've ever seen? Uh, you know, like I said, I used to really remember everything we talked about, and I don't know if I if, if I do as well anymore. Uh, so I, I I don't know if this was, you you probably want to hear some great argument, but we we were debating once, and it was kind of late, and uh, the the guy we were debating for he was from Arizona State. He was a nice guy, but apparently it had been a long day, and cross examination is going on, and my partner Danny Silverman uh, from Colorado was up there. And the rest of us, his his partner Mark Wolsey and I, we had our heads down. You know, we were in our flows. The judge was looking down, and I don't know what happened, but somehow, somehow Danny got on on Kevin's bad side, and Kevin grabbed him, and it tore Danny's shirt. Oh my gosh! In the middle of a debate round, uh, and it was out of character for him. I mean, it sounds it sounds all so dramatic now. No, there was no fist fight or anything like that. But the funny thing is, everybody else in the room had been looking down, so we were all suddenly just stunned. It's like, what just happened here? Uh, so it's funny uh, because I had I used to you know be able to tell you about all sorts of arguments and great rounds and wonderful finals and stuff like that. And now what I remember most from a, a debate round is is 
him and Stiff sort tore Denny Silverman's shirt there in cross examination. That's, that's a story I, for Project, isn't it? And uh, I love stories I think Kevin like that. A new shirt. I think Kevin ended up buying him a new shirt. Or, right. And Danny right. might remember that better than I do. I should I should mention though, because it do, it doesn't ask about a forensic speech. Uh, 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 in 1986, when Ronald Reagan gave the speech uh, when the Challenger was blown up, that speech has always stuck with me. It was amazing. I think it's the most, uh, uh, the best, most touching political speech of my lifetime. So that's one that I really remember. And there's some advice in there that's been useful to me, because uh, he said, when you reach for the stars, sometimes you fall short, and, and you know, despite the pain, you, you you move on. And I've had to move on a couple times in my life, and so I, I guess I should mention that one too. Is that it wasn't just in forensics that I saw amazing speeches, but I don't. I don't want to sell short. I saw so many fantastic performances. I've judged final rounds at AFA and NFA. And and, uh, and also, I mean, uh, understand how far back I go. The first time I ever heard about an automatic teller machine where you could get money without going to a bank was in an inform round. Oh, wow. I even heard of the things at the time. Uh, or uh, MRI, an MRI machine. First time I heard about that was in an inform round. Uh, or uh, desktop, uh, like 3D printers. That was in an inform round. So, I mean, there were a lot of them that, uh, that I remember, you know, pretty well. But uh, the one that sticks back from my forensics career was was Kevin Karen Danny Shirt. Yeah. Well, I now that you say that, I'm going to have to go back and and watch Ronald Reagan's uh, Challenger speech. I, I know it, and obviously I know the, the highlights, but I I don't think I've really uh, analyzed it's, it's, it. It's a study, and you know, the, one of the things that surprised me about that he was supposed to give the uh, the State of the Union address, and then when the Challenger exploded, you know, it changed everything. You couldn't just give the normal State of the Union address, and so that was put together quickly on the fly. It wasn't intended. Uh, and it's really an amazing address. I mean, there's whatever you want to think about Ronald Reagan. There's a reason they called him the great communicator. And there's some things in there that really that really do speak to me. Yeah. I mean, it made a difference in, in my life. So it's, it's memorable. It's worth looking at. Yeah. All right. Question number four. How do you explain forensics to someone unfamiliar with it? That, uh, well, when you're when you're at a when you're at a meeting and there's a, a you know, a, a hundred people in the back of the room and they need someone to speak. And I say, well, I can do it. Uh, whenever anybody asks, I say that's what speech is. That's what that's what forensics is. Is that we learn to not be scared to stand up in front of a group. So it's not been hard for me since. I would have thought it would have been, but it's not been hard for me since. Just because people will. The way I even bring it up is because people ask, you know, why are you, why are you so good at that thing? Because uh, everything else I did, they say, why you know why can why are you so good in a crowd? And I'll say that's that's what if you ever wonder what they were, the speech geeks were doing, that's what they're doing. Hmm. Question number five. What was the most unusual inspiration for a speech? Unusual. So I'm trying to remember even speeches that I gave back. I, I would say, I mean, I could certainly apply the the sirloin of beef there. Uh, there's this, you know, funny things that strike you, and you can turn that into a speech. But I've got more memory of those actually from the history guide here, and the, a lot of things, you know, will come up. I mean, I was I was sitting around saying, you know, what am I going to do in two days? What what am I thinking of? And the guy, I pay a guy to mow my lawn now because it's eighty <laughs> percent humidity here all the time. Uh, and the guy go by on his lawnmower. And I said, I wonder when lawnmowers were invented. Uh, so uh, now, I mean, my life now is all weird inspiration for speeches. That's what it is. Yeah. So you're just kind of looking around, and, and yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, obviously, you got this Australian TV show, lawnmowers, and and you also have the assistance of uh, a bunch of YouTube uh, commenters. You know, people. Oh yeah, watching. we get every time we post something, we get a hundred other, and some of those, some of those are great. Some of those, sometimes I'm looking at one of those, and it moves me into something else. Uh, but I mean, it's it's amazing. Uh, you know, sometimes I just I'll just sit and look around the office and see something, and it'll get me an idea. So so my my life now is looking for strange inspiration because we because with our channel we're trying to get kind of quirky stuff. Right. Uh, and we, you know, we've got episodes on dandelions and bananas and and helium. Uh, those are all history episodes, and so it's uh, th that's what I do all. This. So it's it's like a big game of that thing where you were drawing the things out of the bag and, and giving a speech on it. Right. Question number six: 
Has a speech or debate ever caused you to change? Has a speech or debate ever caused... I've seen so many persuasives. I'd like to think something did, but I, honestly, I, this might be insulting to all the people who've done persuasion, but I did, never walked out of a persuasive round and said, you know, I'm going to go write my congressman. Uh, <laughs> I'm, you know... Uh, I'm, you know, I'm going to have to pass. I, I can't remember one. It's too bad. I mean, because like I said, there's a long time when I really remembered everything. I'm sure they have, uh, but I, I just I don't have one that comes to mind where I saw, you know, it was a really great speech. And I said, oh, that's really going to change how I'm going to do things. I'm sure that that I saw hundreds of speeches. I also, in addition to forensics, you know, I was teaching public speaking for, for a decade. So I've seen speeches on, on everything under the sun. Uh, and I never walked out of one that I suppose really changed my life. I should have. Maybe that says more about me than them. Isn't it interesting how you teach speech debate and you, you've seen everything and then every once in a while, uh, every once in a while a student will come up with a speech topic that I'm going, I've never seen yeah. a speech on this before. And it's kind of crazy when yeah. that happens. Sometimes there are, sometimes there are really uh, you know, fantastic ideas there that we would carry over into forensics. But yeah, I mean, they, they were always an interesting bunch and, and they were always, it's amazing. Yeah. What someone who's just in spe speech 101 because they're forced to be there. Uh, and the stuff that they'll come up with, and there were some, there were some certainly some goodies over the years that, that I heard, and some some that caught me by surprise. You know, I, I didn't really see what was coming, uh, and uh, probably shouldn't have let that in the building. <laughs> we never broke the building, you know. We we never we never broke the law that I know of. Oh, well, I, I remember when I was in high school, I did a, a speech. It was like it was supposed to be a how-to speech for my English class. And um, I, I did a how to put on a condom. And I, you know, you had to submit an outline and everything else. And, and I submitted all the paperwork and got approved. But I don't think she was really paying attention. I think she, she kinda, wasn't looking at it. Huh? And then I got up to the front of the room with my banana and my condom was about to give the speech. And she flipped to my paper and saw what my topic was. She was like, sit down. You're not doing this. You're not doing this. And I was like, what? You approved it? She was like, no, nah, sit down. Pick another topic. You're not doing that. And so. Oh, wow. I was forbidden from doing that as a speech. Uh, I got censored. Wow, but... you know, everybody needs to know how. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's I, what I said. Uh, speaking so, in the University of uh, Wyoming. All right, question number uh, seven. Now I know a part of the answer to this already. What did you do? What did I lose you? Awards. Are you there? I can't hear you. Yeah, can you hear me now? Yeah, I can hear you now. Okay. Yeah, I think we're having just a little bit of a connection issue. So uh, question number seven was, what did you do with your awards? You know, I gave them up. There's no other way to say it. I, uh, I you know, over 20 years, uh, you know, slowly stuff gets weeded out. So I, I have kept exactly two kinds of awards. I have one plate from AFA, and I even lost my semifinal plate. And the way that that happened is when we were hosting, I had to order the trophies, and you send in a, a, uh, an example and they never sent it back. So I said my, my semifinal plate, and they never gave it back to me. But oh, that's uh, unfortunate. But I have my finals plate, and you've seen it. And then a couple of places, like San Diego State, give these beer, big beer mugs. Uh, and Bradley University gives these, uh, give these, also, they're also like a cup, but they're they're like uniquely made pottery. Uh, yeah. And those, some of those are still around the house because we store pencils in them. But I had I had probably, you know, I had hundreds. I mean, I, I, I can't even count. I mean, I had hundreds of trophies. And, you know, over the time, I either just gave them away or threw them away because they didn't fit in the car or left them in the storage shed and, you know, walked away. So, I mean, it, it, you know, for a while, they were the most important thing. And then it turned out that they just weren't. And I couldn't even, I didn't care about how it did, but I, I kept touch of with all these people that I knew. And that was more important. Right. Well, I'm glad you kept at least one because I'm glad to have, uh, yeah. have, have been your acquaintance. Yeah. Yeah. Question number eight. What speech skill do you use most often in your day-to-day -day life? 
Oh, yeah, we were just talking about that. Uh, I, I think that there's a, a big chunk of it is just like the critical thinking. You get that from debate. You get that from limited prep. Uh, but you also get that from watching Inform and, and Persuasion. You know, that ability to take complex stuff, to boil that down into something that makes sense to someone who's not necessarily an expert on it. I use that all the time. Uh, but also, you know, everything, the organizational skills, the thinking about the audience. Uh, but, I, you know, I should mention uh, from my other things that I've done since, uh, we learn how to speak in forensics, but then when you get out in the world, it's, it's really more important to listen. And if you listen really well, uh, then it's easy to find the right words to make the difference that you need to make. Uh, and so I learned that I had to relearn that when I went into sales, that first you have to listen before you speak. That's uh, beautiful you advice. You kind of speak about what you want to speak about. So uh, I mean, that doesn't apply so much. What I'm doing now on the day-to-day -day life, it uses everything that I learned in forensics to be able to put this stuff together and, and make it a, a compelling presentation that people want to watch enough, you know, that, you know, it pays for my, you know, my cat's cat food. But uh, uh, the, the skill that, uh, uh, that I had to learn was listening. And that, that's kind of interesting. It was a skill that I didn't necessarily learn all that well in forensics. You do in debate some, but uh, that was the skill that was kind of, kind of the one that got dropped in terms of communication skills. That's, that's great advice. I like that a lot. Question number nine, why didn't you quit? Quite honestly, because I didn't have to. I mean, I always had a place to be. So I didn't quit forensics until I had to walk out the door. I, and I was kind of chased out, you know, with pitchforks and torches. But, uh, uh, and, but if that hadn't, I don't know if I ever would have given it up. I, I, I loved it and I kept doing it. And it didn't occur to me, you know, the damage it was doing to me. Oh, are you there? Yep, I'm still here. Stuck in there. Uh, I, it didn't occur to me the damage it might have been doing to me personally and to my, to my marriage and my family and my health, uh, you know, still to be, you know, in vans for, you know, 20, 30 times a year. Uh, but I, I don't think I would have left until someone made me leave because I, I enjoyed it, but it was mostly because I enjoyed the people so much, but there's just so many talented people and every person you see that might be the next, you know, that might be the, you know, the next person to win an Academy Award. Yeah, I actually, at some point in my career, I, I judged Jessica Chastain. She competed in forensics and oh, wow. I, don't know the time. I mean, she, you know, Jessica Chastain was just another competitor at the time or uh, Dana Perino, who, who was a White House press secretary. She competed in Southern Colorado. I knew her there. Uh, and so you, you know, you just keep doing it because you meet all these extraordinary people that you know are going to do extraordinary things. Uh, and, uh, and I probably wouldn't, wouldn't have quit until he either killed me or until I was forced to. So that's why I didn't leave. I, cause I, I didn't have to. Question number 10. Now this is my favorite question. What was the best speech advice you've ever received? The best speech advice that you've ever received? Uh, well, I would go back to what I said before. I mean, the best advice I, I got later was to say, was to listen. Uh, if you're, if you're in front of a client, uh, usually, uh, usually you let them speak first, and if you listen, then uh, you can give the perfect speech. So, really, what wh what that does, and you learn that in speech, you learn you know whiff them and make sure that you're speaking to the audience. And what's most important is the audience, and not you, if you want to move them to action. Uh, but I mean, the the best speech advice was to say that if you listen to your audience, and you have a chance to often do that out in the world, uh, figure out what they need, and then uh, then that gives you the ability to give the speech that's going to move them to action. So. That's really, to me, the best advice I got from a sales manager, not necessarily in forensics. But, but also, that, that, that judge who in semifinals at Arlington said, plant your feet and only move on main points, that was the difference between semis and finals. So I, I don't remember who that judge was, but thank you. That was, that was the reason I have that plate that's in the back there. Yeah, every once in a while you get those ballots that just really resonate with you where you're like, oh, that totally makes sense. And I'll yeah, doing that thinking, Doesn't this person have a coach? I'm like, no. <laughs> 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 you tell me that. 
Well, Lance, this has been great. Uh, it's a little slice of heaven. It's been great talking to you. Um, it's been great kind of picking your brain and, and understanding your history of of your speech career. And so for the history guy, I got to know the history of the history guy. Um, so yeah. Thank you so much for coming on. I haven't talked about it a long time. So thanks. This was this was awesome. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, it was great. Can you uh, give yourself a little plug so people can find your YouTube channel and where they can find you on social media, things like that? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, because I'm, I'm the host of the wildly popular YouTube channel. The, the channel is The History Guy. History deserves to be remembered, which you can find it on YouTube if you just type in The History Guy. Uh, we do have a webpage, too. It's historyguy.net, and uh, you can find us also on Facebook. Uh, but uh, it's primarily the YouTube channel. So just go to YouTube, type in The History Guy, uh, and then just keep watching because the more you watch, the you know, the more we watch the ad, though. If you sit through the ad, even if you're not paying attention, sit through the ad, we get money. And if you don't, we don't. So that's the other plug I'll give. Don't just watch the history guy, but let the ad run and then watch the history. And I really hope you like it. I hope you can see in there that uh, these are skills that you can get uh, in forensic. You don't have to, you know, you don't have to pigeonhole. You can go out and really be successful with the skills that you develop. It really is a great, uh, it's a great YouTube channel. And I've, I've learned a lot just from watching the YouTube channel. So I've spent... Uh, exceptional amount of time watching some of these videos. I didn't really realize that you released them that often, and I guess I, yeah, I really have yeah. a lot more that yeah. I need to go catch up on. Um, I'm sure so, you do. Keep up. Yeah, we put out. We've been doing it three years, and we've got more than 400 videos out there. That's great, you guys. It's it's a fantastic show. So please go check it out. Uh, as for us, if uh, anyone wants to find us, our handle on Instagram and Twitter is at Forensic Podcast. Uh, Lance, thanks so much for coming on. It's been great. And so until next round, keep talking. And as Lance Geiger says, listen to your audience. I'm from an actress. Oh, yeah, acting now. Because if you're not, somebody must have shown you how you got the same. Bunker, old world charm. I don't know where you come.